0: Welcome to Nothing to Hide, the Moran Giles podcast. I'm your host, Daryl Calfee. Moran Giles is one of America's oldest leather companies. We were founded during the heart of the Great Depression here in Lynchburg, Virginia in 1933. And almost 100 years later, our leadership is still in pursuit of one thing, the world's finest leather. Perhaps we've even touched your life. Maybe it was in a hotel lobby or your home, or perhaps this morning when you went to get a cup of coffee, you found your favorite leather chair in the corner, you settled in. Well, that leather is probably Moran Giles too. Our goal was simply just to share some stories within this podcast, to take you on a journey, to let you experience what we experience. We'll teach you how leather's made and give you insight to some of the subtle nuances of the material. Did you know it's one of man's oldest materials? We're also going to take you to meet some of our favorite people in the world designers and creative influencers, and people that are connected to Moran Giles through one thing leather. We hope you'll join us on the More Giles podcast. Nothing to hide. Hey guys, good morning. I'm here with our president, Sackett Wood. Sackett, good morning. Good morning, Daryl. <laughs> it's so odd to like it's talk good. on microphones in our own office, isn't it? It's good it? to be with you. <laughs> well, um, so everybody can kind of get a sense of where we're at. We're in our headquarters here in Lynchburg, Virginia. Technically, it's Forest, Virginia, and we're in a room full of leather. It works great for audio. So, good. It smells good, too. Good. Should. Yeah. So, I'm going to be honest, this is a first run um, at our podcast, and in a lot of ways we may not get it right, but I think you're going to enjoy this. Sackett is the president of Moore & Giles, and Sackett, how long have you been the president of Moore & Giles? Uh, I've
1: been the president since 2007, and I joined the company in 1990.
0: Give me a picture of what 1990 looked like at Moore & Giles.
1: 1990 at Moore & Giles looked like a six-man operation with about a 12,000 square foot warehouse. With the majority of the business doing what the company was founded upon doing, which is providing materials to footwear factories, we sold anything that went into a shoe. We sold adhesive, we sold nails, we sold thread, we sold laces, we sold counter materials for the inside of the shoe, and we sold leather. And so leather has sort of been the common theme since the beginning. How much leather were you selling in 1990? Not very much. (laughs) Not very much. But I think that one of the things Don Giles really saw was the demise of the domestic footwear industry Craddock Terry being the largest shoemaker around Lynchburg those factories were struggling and the factories up and down the east coast were struggling so we realized we needed to branch out and we really went out and developed upholstery leathers to help account for the loss of the footwear business
0: so you mentioned Craddock Terry you know if you come to Lynchburg today there's a chance you're gonna stay in the Craddock Terry Hotel how's that connected to our history?
1: Well, that has a very deep connection to our history. That hotel was a shoe factory. And in 1932, there was a gentleman named Donald Graham Moore, who had worked as a pattern maker in that factory, was still working in that factory. And like a lot of people in 1932, a lot of companies were struggling, and he lost his job. And so he uh, was 50 years old at the time, and he had to sort of pick himself up by his bootstraps and figure it out, which Mm -hmm. is figure it out has been a common theme of Warren Giles for a long time. So he founded the Donald Graham Moore sales company and he began to represent different lines that sold materials into footwear factories and so that's what he did. And one of those materials happened to be leather right? You can look at the original accounts and see western leather was the line we had in 1933 that we sold to Cractarian and to other factories.
0: So when I think of Lynchburg you know today I don't think about shoes but at one time was Shoes were a huge part of our history, right?
1: Lynchburg was, 100 years ago, probably one of the largest footwear manufacturers in the country. And certainly it was probably the largest in the South and on the East Coast. It had 14 factories around Lynchburg. Within... 60 miles. How did
0: we become a a footwear capital? And I guess the real question is, is like, how did we even get on the map to some degree, you know? And I think that's kind of part of Moran Giles' history is connected with Lynchburg's history, right? It
1: definitely is. So Lynchburg has a rich history and it was a booming economy in the 1850s all the way through into the early 1900s. It was a tobacco town and city. It had major warehouses that had uh, tobacco inspections and tobacco sales uh, that also turned into tobacco factories where they made pipe tobacco and cigars and they also made a lot of chewing tobacco. Mm. Chewing tobacco being the main ingredient. In chewing tobacco, you could see spittoons in churches and in hotels. It was everywhere in the city. But I say all that because we have a deep connection to tobacco in terms of the company Moore & Giles. And there's a gentleman named Maurice Moore who took the scraps from the chewing tobacco operation and he learned how to pulverize those scraps, to grind them up, to make a very fine pipe tobacco that became very popular and it was called Kinick And it became popular during the war and he became one of the largest producers of this brand of pipe tobacco in the country. His problem was, is that he did not patent the process of how that tobacco was made. And so it became sort of a generic process. Uh, And although he became a pretty wealthy man, I think he would have been a lot wealthier had he done that. So Maurice Moore was Don Giles, who hired me in 1990. He was Don Giles' great, great grandfather. Wow. And so I just often wonder, had he patented that process, would we all be here talking today. That's cool. Maybe not.
0: So Lynchburg has deep
1: roots obviously in agriculture
0: being center for tobacco. I hear rumors all the time about how Lynchburg got its name and where Lynchburg really came from, but what's the real story with Lynchburg? So
1: Lynchburg was you have to go back to a runaway from Galway, Ireland, a man named Charles Lynch was 15 years old and decided to run away from home in Galway, Ireland. I'm not sure why, but he boarded a ship headed to America. He jumped off the ship, having second thoughts about it, and was fished out of the sea and brought back onto the ship and made it all the way to Virginia and settled in Albemarle County and married a tobacco owner's daughter. They then acquired a big tract of land south of Albemarle County, which eventually became Lynchburg. Their son John Lynch really is the founder of Lynchburg. He created a ferry system that took people to and across the mm-hmm. banks of the James River, you know the James River being named for King James uh, the former monarch of both England and Scotland. That ferry system became a very profitable uh, business for him and so he applied to make Lynchburg a town through the Virginia legislature which it was made a town in 1786. So Lynchburg is named after John Lynch, who was the founder of our town, which eventually became a city.
0: Man, that's so interesting that really Lynchburg comes from this idea
1: of an entrepreneur, right? Starting their own business to take people across the river. Yeah, I mean, he bought his first tobacco warehouse in the late 1700s, and then Lynchburg could not separate itself from Mm -hmm. tobacco. By 1830, there were 15 tobacco factories, and then the dawn of the Civil War, there was 45. And so Lynchburg at that time was probably in 1860, the second wealthiest city in the country per capita behind New Bedford, Massachusetts, which was known for whaling. So we were behind New Bedford, who was creating oil from whaling, which stopped shortly thereafter. So we
0: essentially are a home for tobacco, at that point, like pretty much pre-Civil War, then during the Civil War, and then what happens after that?
1: So Lynchburg struggles for a little while after the Civil War. One of the things that I think is important to mention is that Lynchburg really was on a path to be destroyed in the Civil War. I think that the Civil War was becoming a war of attrition by 1864. Lynchburg was a main supply route; hmm. it had railroads going north east and west, and it was a main supply route to Richmond. And so I think President Lincoln felt if he could destroy the supply routes at Lynchburg, he would be able to sort of end the war. Yeah. And so there was a general named David Hunter, who he assigned to go down through the Shenandoah Valley and come to Lynchburg and take over these supply lines. And the story goes is that on his way to Lynchburg, he stopped off in Lexington, Virginia, and he burned Virginia Military Institute and. In uh, ravaged what was then Washington College, took George Washington's statue, and it delayed his entry to Lynchburg, which gave the troops in Lynchburg, led by Jubal Early, time to get here and time to save it. And so by the time General Hunter got here, they had fortified some inner and outward defenses in Lynchburg, but they were still outnumbered by a large margin by the Union Army. And so as he got to the bluff overlooking Lynchburg, they created really an illusion that I think helped save Lynchburg. And They ran the trains in throughout the night with bands to create the idea that there was troop reinforcements coming in all through the night. So they had bands playing, yeah. and the train is just moving back and forth? As the story goes. Wow. The story's probably gotten better with age. Yeah, H, yeah, of course. Uh, but the reality is is that it worked, and Hunter retreated back north through the Shenandoah Valley and back into West Virginia. But you have to imagine that if that had happened, Lynchburg would have been destroyed. Those tobacco buildings that we still have with us today would not be here. Yeah. And you just wonder what, what our city would look like, even though we were on the wrong side of the war. Yeah. It was a blessing that our city was saved. That's so interesting. So we've
0: essentially moved from what is entrepreneurialism in a young man setting up a ferry, right, into really creative endeavor, even in the most terrible moment, to save a community, right? And then the Great Depression happens, essentially. Like if you're fast-forwarding through time, our founder, Donald Gray Moore, has to go right back into being creative. He was 50 when he was laid off from the Shoe factory.
1: Yeah, he graduated from the School of Hard Knocks. I think his father's business had failed, and so he left Episcopal High School to come home and work, and he got a job at the shoe factory and worked its way up to be one of the major purchasing agents there. Uh, but the Terry Shoe Corporation was booming in the early 20s and late 20s. Their stock went down, I think their stock went from 75 to 25 in 1932, and they had massive layoffs, like a lot of companies did. But that sort of uh, desperation created this entrepreneurial spirit i think is alive in the company today quite mm-hmm. honestly i love to tell that story because you know he had no choice but to try and figure out what he could do to support his family and so he became a very successful company his daughter fell in love with a man named vernon giles uh, they got married and that's how and giles became who it is vernon giles uh, joined the company in the mid-30s and then went off to war in 1941, and he was gone from 1941 to 1945. We still have the original ledger where he was paid every month during that time. didn't hurt that he was married to Don Moore's daughter, but he was also serving his country, paying his debt to the country. What did he do during World War II, do you remember? Well, I wish Don was here to tell the story because he can tell it better than I can, but he joined in 1941, I think it was called the Fifth Tank Destroyer Group. They landed at Utah Beach in Normandy and went through the battlefields of France. They were at the liberation of Paris, and they crossed the Rhine and saw the fall of Munich, and were also at the liberation of the Dachau concentration camp. Wow. And then he came home in 1945, and I always remembered. Don called his grandfather Daddy, and his father Vernon, because <laughs> he missed you know the first four years of his life. What a tough dude, by the way, to go from selling
0: leather and stuff for shoes to battling in Europe in a tank and then to come back and transition that again and build a successful company. Well, I
1: think a lot of young men who went off at the time and came back and were all very successful. Yeah. Man, it creates like this resilience. Yeah.
0: So, Moran Giles today, we're 86 years old. We're sitting in 120,000 square feet in Lynchburg, Virginia, not 12,000 square feet anymore. Lynchburg itself looks very different. And we're going through this beautiful renaissance in town. I think there's so many beautiful things we could point to that have happened even in just the last 10 years here in Lynchburg. Where are we at today and where
1: are we headed? Moran Giles or Lynchburg? Both. I think Lynchburg's entering a period of the downtown revitalization reminds me of what it looked like 100 years ago. I mean, I mean, the Virginian Hotel was a luxury hotel in 1920, Mm -hmm. and 100 years later it's become a luxury hotel today. It's been open for a year. Matter of fact, the founder of Craddock and Terry Shoe Company, Mr. Craddock, had a big influence in creating the Virginian Hotel. He was one of their original visionaries for it. You know, the Academy of Music Theater, which was opened in 1905, burned in 1911, and was rebuilt in 1912, has been vacant since 1958 Going a $36 million historic renovation has opened in the last year. So it's an exciting time to be in Lynchburg. People have returned to the center of the city to shop and to eat and to work. It's great to see. How do you feel like Moren Giles has played a role in that? Well, I think that the thing I would say about the people at Moren Giles is that this is a Lynchburg company, or at least... At least a regional company that many of us, or most of us, grew up here and remember what downtown was like when we were young. And you know, when I was young, I went downtown to buy my football equipment and, or sports equipment and, and to eat and to shop and get my shoes for school, and it's where my father worked. Um, and by the time I was 15 years old, people had gone to the malls, and uh, downtown was sort of a wasteland. So I think. When I came back in 1990, there was a 25-year master plan to sort of reinvent downtown. It was put together by a very disciplined city planner, and. I think the city council had the wisdom to follow that plan, and mm-hmm. I think we are seeing the fruits of that today.
0: Yeah. So, you know, when I think about Lynchburg, I don't know that it gets the play that Richmond or Charlottesville or even Roanoke get in people's minds, but it's this really beautiful community that we live in. Like, I can't imagine being anywhere else. This is home. But for you, as a native, I- I'm not a native, you are. How does it make you feel to be a part of that when you look at life today
1: in town? I think it's an amazing time to live in Lynchburg, Virginia, and I'm very proud of what's been accomplished in downtown with good public-private partnership, good city support. I think the next 25 to 50 years here is going to be an exciting place to be.
0: So as we connect that... You know because again like what we've been talking about this whole time is we are so connected to the history of lynchburg like more giles as a company as a group of people is connected to that what's that look like for us in the next 25 years here at more giles
1: well i think somebody asked me how can you build a brand in lynchburg virginia and i thought to myself well, we could not build a brand if we weren't from lynchburg you know this is such a part of who this company is and who we are and it's a part of our identity and so we really Celebrate that and appreciate the opportunities we have to live here. It's a beautiful part of the world You know, we're we're in forest, Virginia, which, you know, Thomas Jefferson's summer home is just as a crow flies probably two miles away from here Our property here sits on the original tract of land that he was gifted by his father-in-law That was probably a 4,000 acre tract. And so this warehouse here is on that original tract. That's really getting way off. Subject, yeah, but, but I think but there's like, just a great history to Lynchburg Yeah, and,
0: yeah, and I and think to bring it back around like our core Our essence of who we are here at Moren Giles is so deeply connected to these Virginian roots of creative, I would say, humble, hardworking people. That I don't feel like that—that's a stretch from who we are today. I
1: think it's exciting that a lot of the people who grew up here that work here now went away and worked in New York and San Francisco and and other places and have come back here, which is great to see.
0: That's so good. All right. So, what
1: do you think is the future for Moren Giles? Well, you know, I think, I think. Uh, always feel like we're just getting started. We've come a long way in the last 25 years, but I think we've got so much work to do. I I think that so much of what we've done mirrors sort of the type of situation that Don Moore had in 1932, where especially in the early 90s when we were transitioning from a footwear company to an upholstery leather company, it was hard. But I think we finally decided just to create leathers that we liked. Mm -hmm. That we appreciated that were visually stimulating that felt good and not make things we didn't like so we ended up making some really unique leathers that were sort of unconventional at the time somewhat irresponsible and risky but those leathers that we brought out in 1995, one of which were, I would say is saddle horn, which was developed from an old handbag, we sent to Spain and uh, it was not a conventional poultry leather, but we still sell that leather today. Yeah. And it sort of put us on a path to really take a fashion approach to poultry leather, to really change the colors of it every season, to really experiment with what we could creatively uh, in the tanneries to make really interesting articles that appealed to designers and architects and manufacturers. Uh, but that process is never ending. We're doing the same thing every every season and i think more than ever right now it's an important time to really not just sell but educate and remind people of this ancient material that we work with that is really a recycled material. Mm-hmm. You know, we are at the end of the food chain and clean that up. You know, These hides are only available because of the world's demand for meat. And the reality is that the hides need to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. And they're dealt with responsibly. And to not deal with them would be a great disservice to the planet. And so I think we're taking a seat at the table of really telling that story of the rich history of leather. We're taking a waste material and creating functional, lasting luxury yeah. out of a waste material. It's hard to find that story anywhere else. And it's more important now than ever in the age of sustainable practices. That goes with our tannery partners around the world, who I think have a commitment to the environment and are good corporate citizens in the communities they serve. I mean, most of these tanneries around the world are in small towns that have a river running through it. Yeah. River water is a key ingredient to the tanning of leather. So it's important for their local communities that they are good stewards to the environment.
0: How many tanneries do we currently work
1: with? Well, we probably work with 20 plus tanneries around the world. Probably 80% of it is with about 10 tanneries.
0: And those have become deep, meaningful relationships for you as well. They're right? old
1: relationships. And I think that's because when no one would sell us anything, we went and sat down in these tanneries and found the people who really appreciated the creative endeavor that leather can be if you uh, take the time and have the patience to do it. Everybody's got to get the science of leather right, but after the science is done, there's a creative process for the people who appreciate it to sit around and experiment, not unlike working in a kitchen uh, and changing out, not just following one recipe, but maybe mixing recipes and trying different ingredients. Yeah. And If you're willing to do that, you can come out with some really beautiful material.
0: Well, When I think back to 1990, no cell phones, no laptop on the road. You're really in that kitchen, in that tannery, creating. You're focused in that moment. No distraction.
1: I don't want it to sound glamorous. Yeah, um, There's a lot of waiting around, <laughs> you know, but, but if you find the people in the tannery, especially the technical directors, the creative directors, who really appreciate that endeavor, yeah. you can really do some fun things.
0: What do you think Donald Graham Moore would say today if he walked in the front door?
1: I think he would say, well done, but keep going. I think it's a company founded in the roots of the Depression that... Looked at the problems of the world as opportunities and was adaptable and flexible and persevered. You know, perseverance, I think, is a core value of the company among others. I mean, I think we have to do that right now. I think we are in a place where we've got to make sure that we are educating and being a good steward of the material to Mm. the markets we serve. Tell me
0: your story really quick. I know you grew up in Lynchburg Yeah. you did sports and theater. Then you went to UVA. Yep, I went
1: to E.C. Glass High School here where many of the employees of the company went to high school. I graduated from the University of Virginia. I was an English major, had no idea really what I wanted to do, but my father told me that I had to get a job. And so I worked in a bank in Charlotte, North Carolina in a corporate training program and then as a commercial loan officer in South Carolina for two years. And, you know, realized I really wasn't sure I wanted to do that the rest of my life and left not planning at all on coming back to Lynchburg. Never intended to come back here, but ran into Don Giles, and he told me what they were doing and that they needed to change their business. And, you know, I really wasn't sure exactly what they did, (laughs) but as my grandmother would say, he had a good face on him. He liked what he did. He was honest and humble and competitive. And so I took this job, and um, I've never looked back. It's been been a great experience. What
0: would you say to the younger you, right, like looking back and – you're in your 20s, right? Knowing what you know now. What would you tell yourself going into it? Well,
1: I would say that it's just better not to know everything you need to know. You know, <laughs> just take the job and do it because you're going to encounter obstacles along the way. And you just deal with them one at a time. Yeah. And eventually, if you persevere, yeah, uh, I think you can come out on top. And I've had the blessing of having a great mentor in Don Giles. I've had a great business partner in Trey Petty. Yeah. 25 years and so that gives you the will to keep pushing and to keep moving forward and the belief that you're doing something good
0: yeah and just following that path so talk about trey real quick you know like i look at trey and i just you think perseverance I think that word is on his back how did you guys meet and like what's the story that we,
1: we I've known Trey since I was young a young boy I'm a little older than he is so I knew him when he was young and we both uh, wrestled in high school not at the same time but I used to pick him up and take him to wrestling practice when he was young and he went to VMI I didn't go to VMI uh, <laughs> John Giles went to VMI but I would say that VMI creates great men uh, creates great loyalty creates great work ethic and so uh, Trey is one of those guys that if you're in business with someone and you're working hand-in-hand day by day you need to find somebody you can count on Mm -hmm. and it's easy when things are good but when things aren't good when you look around and see who your partners are that's important and uh, he's one of those guys. So
0: this question's for me, but it's also for anybody out there that's young, that maybe in the first part of their career. Would you say that creating a rel- deep relationships with somebody like that, how valuable is that? And how do you find that person to hit your boat to, if you will?
1: Well, I think that young people all the time need to, they're, when they're looking to find work, they don't need to necessarily always look at the work, but look at the people around them in the work and understand this is who i'm going to be working with can i rely on these people can i trust them is this something that i'm going to enjoy the interaction with i mean i think that's just as important as i mean i had no intention to ever be in the leather business it's the people around the leather business that attracted me to it and that's made a big difference and i would also remind young people when i talk to them that you know you don't necessarily have to go to a a big city after college to find your job. And I think I felt that way at the time too, but uh, I encourage them to go back to the communities they grew up in and look around the corner at mm. some of these businesses that might need some change or the next generation yeah. to come along. And I mean, honestly, I took a job that nobody else wanted mm. and, and that's made a big difference for me. Well, I
0: think we read that so often right now, right? In every self-help book out there, it says, you
1: know, do the work that nobody else wants to do. And do it well. Yeah.
0: And find the opportunity yeah. in that, right? And doesn't
1: mean it all was great at the start Start. I mean, it was a struggle. I mean, I spent a lot of time in the shoe factory my first two months here I was like oh my goodness yeah. <laughs> what's the worst job you've ever had to do at Moore Giles worst job I've ever had to do messiest
0: the dirtiest the one that you're like I would prefer not to do that one again I
1: don't know if it was the worst job I was probably the worst at it because I think everybody who started here has done everything and I would not say I was an accomplished forklift driver <laughs> I, I had a few accidents in the truck and but anyway That's I good. learned how to do everything here what's
0: well, it's funny it's my team great. says that all the time they say they thought they were being hired on to be on a creative team they didn't realize it was just gonna be
1: carrying stuff around every day Yeah, it's all we do is move stuff around everybody needs to do what they need to do here and Some of it's not glamorous. Yeah. So that's okay.
0: Well, I know your time's super valuable. So thanks for spending some time with us this morning. I think this is going to be beneficial for anybody listening to this who's in business, whether it's connected to us or not. I also think for future employees and, you know, all the interns that we have coming through right now, like they need to hear this and hear our stories.
1: Anything else you want to leave us with? Thank you, Daryl. Appreciate it. We'll see how this turns out. Looking forward to hearing it. Thanks, Zach. All right, bye.